Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We'll be starting with verse 31 and ending at verse 35. You may also follow along in the overhead behind me. John 13, 31. Therefore, when he, referring to Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And God will and and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. So Jody already gave you a bit of an introduction, a bit of what my introduction was as well, about what this day is, what Monday Thursday is. But remember the particular things that he said, it has to do with the commandment. It's called Monday because that's an old English word that came from the Latin word mandatum, as he said. Now every year... We forget this, right? Because every year I have to go back and think, okay, why, why is it Monday? Sorry, what? Oh, yeah, Wikipedia. Yeah, very helpful. So, now, the word mandatum comes from this text we just read. It's the Latin translation of verse 34. Oh, it's not up there, is it? Okay, a new commandment I give to you. So, commandment is the word mandatum, which is the word mondi, okay? So hopefully we won't continue to forget this and keep having to remind ourselves this in the future. Now, we could essentially call this day that we are celebrating today Commandment Thursday, right? And some churches do that, actually. Um, Other churches call it Covenant Thursday, because of the Lord's Supper, which was instituted on this day. And the Lord's Supper was the new covenant. However, the foot washing ceremony, which was celebrated on this day, was not the covenant, even though it occurred on the same evening. The foot washing ceremony was not even really a ceremony at all, because it wasn't a public, it wasn't a formal event. It was simply a demonstration of Christ's love for his disciples. It was a lesson on how they should serve and love one another. So foot washing, we don't really understand it today. And that's part of the reason, I think, why we're not doing it tonight. Is because it was quite a different thing. It was a very dirty thing. I mean, think about it. Feet were the dirtiest parts of the body that you could that you could wash back then, back in that day. And just think about yourself for a minute. So when you're wearing flip-flops on a 90-degree day, humid, hot, 
and then you're done with your day, you come in the house, and your feet just stink. That's not even close. Okay, they had dirt, dust, mud, probably donkey droppings. I mean, you name it. Waste out on the street. Their feet were the dirtiest places on their bodies. And like you and me, unless you're the Hobbes family, you don't like to have your feet dirty, right? They like to go around barefoot. And we know that they didn't like to have their feet dirty from Luke and the parable of two debtors. I'll, I'll tell you about this. In this parable, which is in Luke 7, we have three characters. You probably know this, this parable. We have a money lender and we have two debtors. Scripture says that the one debtor owed 500 denarii and the other debtor owed 50 denarii. And if I understand correctly what a denarius was, maybe you can, maybe some of you have researched this, but it's equivalent to one day's wages for a laborer. And so think how many days you'd have to work. It'd be about 500 days for the one person and 50 days for the other. Now let's equate that with money for a laborer. Probably, I'm guessing, maybe $50,000 for the one, maybe $5,000 for the other. I might be a little high, I might be a little low. I'm not sure. In today's standards, it's still the same number of days of work, right? It's 500 days of work. And both of them were unable to pay back the loan. However, this money lender, he graciously forgave their debts. So Jesus asks, which one of them will love the money lender more? Well, obviously, the one who is forgiven more, right? Yeah, of course. But the moral of the lesson was brought to real life when Jesus expresses the lack of love and hospitality that the Pharisee whom he was dining with had showed to him. Jesus said to him, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with tears and wiped them with her head, with her hair. So here Jesus is showing that this woman, known as a sinner, was loving him and being hospitable to him. And seeing that Jesus' feet were dirty, she was cleaning them with all that she had. Her hair her tears, and her perfume. Because of this, Jesus rebuked Simon, saying, You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Notice that Jesus is giving greater emphasis to the washing of his feet than the anointing of, head, of, his, of oil to his head. He's saying, you did not even do this to my head, but she did this to my feet. He then says to Simon, her sins, which are many, and they were apparently known to the city, her sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he, is, he who is forgiven little loves little. 
Jesus then says to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. Because this woman, she has no barriers between her and Christ. It's just her, her sin, which is exposed. Everyone knows about it. And then Jesus, the forgiver. And that's it. There's, there's no pomp. There's no making a show. There's no pretending that she's something that she's not. She's not pretending to be righteous. But was she righteous? Absolutely she was. But how could she be righteous? She was known to the whole city as a sinner. She was righteous because Jesus declared her righteous. He forgave her sins. So the question is then, do we love Christ the way this woman did? Her love was sweet. She didn't care about what people thought of her. She selflessly got on her knees and worshipped the Savior. She was willing to make her hair dirty. Her hair. The glory of a woman. She forgot herself and worshipped God. Imagine it. She doesn't have a washcloth, so she uses her hair. Would you even dust the church piano with your hair? Maybe your arm, right? And we're talking about dirty feet, not a dusty, little bit dirty piano. She humbled herself as a sinner before God. She served him. She worshipped him. She loved him and forgot herself. It wasn't about her. It was about him. So what about you? Is life all about you? Are you too good or too important to be a servant to others? And by serving others, serving Christ. Are you too proud to receive help from others as I am? Are you unwilling to get on your hands and knees with tears and do the dirty work of humbling yourself before Christ? Are you unwilling to uncover the nakedness of your sin and confess all your sins to God knowing that if you love him and confess your many faults, he will forgive much. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Remember, the person who is forgiven much will love much. But if you have nothing to confess, then you have nothing to be forgiven for, and therefore you lack love. Because of the example of this woman, we should be quick. We should be quick to confess our many faults to one another, so that we may be forgiven abundantly and cleansed from all unrighteousness. 
don't you want to be forgiven much? Don't you want to be cleansed from unrighteousness? Of course you do. It would be foolish not to. But if you were too proud to confess your sins, what hope is there for forgiveness of sins? There is none. You already think that you are righteous. You think that you don't need Jesus. But Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. So stop lying to yourself. You are a sinner and you need to humble yourself before the holy God and stop behaving before men as if you have no sin. This is what we do all the time. We behave as if we have no sin. So now let's go back to the text. Just moments before Jesus spoke the words that we read in our scripture lesson, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which was followed by the foot washing. But then what happened after the foot washing? Jesus foretold his betrayal by Judas. He told the disciples that the one whom he dips the morsel and gives it to him, that is the one who will betray him. When Jesus did this and gave it to Judas, Scripture says that Satan entered into him. So Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. Judas left immediately and Scripture tells us that it was nighttime. There's no coincidence there. Bad things happen at night. It was nighttime. By this point, the disciples still had no clue what was going on. They thought that Jesus was telling Judas to go and gather food for the feast or, or uh, give money to the poor as was customary on the Passover. And after this transpired, Jesus said in verses 31 and 32, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So why would he say such a thing here? Judas just left, and now he's glorified. What's the connection there? What does Judas leaving having to do with Jesus' glorification? Well, here's the reason. When Judas left, things were all of a sudden put into high gear. It was the fast track. Now, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to glorify the Father and for the Father to glorify the Son. Jesus knew that his time on earth would just be a little bit longer. The cross had now become a certainty. He knew that his suffering would come soon, but he delighted in it. He glorified the Father in it. Christ looked upon his sufferings and gloried in them, And by obediently enduring the death on the cross, he glorified the Father. The only way he could glorify the Father was through perfect obedience. His joy was in obeying the Father. Hebrews 12 says that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. 
His joy was in obeying the Father and gathering his sheep. That was the whole point of his ministry on earth. To draw sinners to himself and to make them known, to make them his own rather, through his blood. He paid the penalty for their sins on the cross and he gave hope. He gave hope to sinners like you and me. He has made them holy by his blood. And since Jesus knew that his time was running out, he spoke all the more tenderly with them. He called them little children. Nowhere in the Gospels had he spoken to his disciples in this way. He was showing his affection to them. He knew that what was going to come would be very, very difficult for his disciples. And that's why he spoke tenderly with them. But the difficult thing for his disciples is what came next. He said, where I am going, you cannot come. They had spent three years together and were with each other constantly. They had put their trust in him. They watched him constantly as his students and learned from him daily. And now, that time was coming to an end. Or was it? He was removing his bodily presence from them, but yet he was teaching them during this. He was teaching them to come to him in a spiritual way, promising to send his spirit. By removing his bodily presence, he was teaching them to hope in him and long for him. He was teaching them to look forward to being with him in eternity and reigning with him forever yet assuring them that he would send a helper, that they would not be without a helper, that he would send his spirit to guide them and continue in teaching them. And so now, we come to the whole reason we celebrate Monday Thursday as a holy day. He said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Well, how is that a new commandment? Haven't we always been called to love one another? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said that the greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So what was so new and different about this commandment in John 13? What was different was that the disciples were commanded to love one another as Christ loved them. He is using himself as the example of love. That's why it's a new commandment. We have a new model. Christ is is now the standard. So how... How did Jesus show his love to his disciples? What did he want them to emulate? Well, of course, the Gospels are full. I mean, full of examples of Christ's love for his disciples and for others. But we can even give a very complete answer 
just from the example of the upper room that very evening. So listen and apply these things to your hearts as, as you hear them. First, he declared his devotion to his disciples by vowing that he would never eat the Passover meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So what do we learn from this? We learn that he yearns to be with his people. He longs to be with them again. He desires to be physically reunited with his disciples. Second, he was patient with them. On multiple occasions, he had to rebuke his disciples, just in that room alone. Think how long he was patient with Judas, knowing that he would betray him. He allowed Judas to partake in the special meal and also served him by washing his feet. Augustine said, Wonderful was Christ's patience because he received Judas at the banquet in which he instituted and gave the figure of his body and blood to his disciples. But Jesus spent three years, remember, three years with Judas. Think how important the application is here. How often do we not want to serve others because we think it's a waste of our time? How often do we not want to serve because we think it's beneath us? Do you think that Jesus thought I'm wasting my time with Judas. In the end, he's not going to give a rip about me anyway. What's the point? No way. Jesus loved him and desired for Judas to repent of his sin and to reciprocate his love. But Judas sought selfish gain and was cut off. Judas was made an example of for us. And yet Christ was glorified in this. When we think that we are wasting our time and energy ministering to God's people, sorry, ministering to people's hearts that won't be changed, we need to remember that Jesus spent three years with a man who would later betray him. We also don't know the will of the Father. We don't know how he might use a person who rejects him He might, after all, change their hearts. So we must be diligent and work and continue and be humble and not worry what the outcome will be. God will deal with that. Third, Jesus loved his disciples by teaching them. He spent countless, I mean countless, countless hours with them teaching them the things of God. If that's not love, I don't know what love is. He also loved them by humbling himself. He treated them as more important than himself and demonstrated this by washing their feet, which was normally a job of a servant in the house. He displayed his affection for them by touching them and reclining at the table with them. In fact, one of the disciples, the one who is called the one whom Jesus loved, as it says in Scripture, was reclining on Jesus' bosom. And the list goes on. He comforted them. 
He spoke tenderly to them. He knew their weaknesses and their needs and cared for them. He rebuked them. He disciplined them. He suffered for them. He laid down his life for them. He was completely selfless. We can go on and on and on. This is just a small part of the model we have of Christ's love simply from the upper room. And the wonderful thing is that God has given us the ability to do all of these things. All of them. It is completely possible to obey Christ's commandment to love one another as he loved the disciples. We will fail. But he has not given us something that we are not able to do. And here's the thing. In my experience... No one has ever, no one I've ever known at least, has denied that Jesus is loving. It doesn't matter if they're Christian or pagan. Maybe this is your experience as well. In fact, pagans are very quick to point out just how loving Jesus was. Right? But as Christians, whenever we obey one or two of these characteristics of Jesus that I just named, professing Christians... And pagans alike often shove it back in our faces and accuse us of being unloving and unchristlike. Do you know which of these examples I'm referring to? He rebuked them and he disciplined them. The world sees this as the uttermost sin. People quickly forget the difficult ways that Jesus loved his disciples and others who were with him, around him. Did not Jesus say to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. But that was so unloving of Jesus to call Peter Satan. Doesn't he know not to call people names? Oh, and didn't his mother teach him that he should never call anyone a brood of vipers? Or hypocrites, or blind guides, fools, blind men, whitewashed tombs, or serpents. And you should never say to anyone, you are of your father, the devil. That's just not polite. Now you can make an argument that Peter was of the faith, and the other names that I listed off were not. But the letter to Titus tells us to refute those who contradict the doctrine of God, and to reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. We cannot allow God's word to continue to be trampled on. We constantly shrink away because of fear of losing relationships. Do you see how you do this? I do it. We constantly shrink away because of fear of losing relationships. Pastor Bailey said to the pastor's college students on Tuesday that relationships are trumping truth. And we allow for truth to be subordinate to relationships. That's not the way It should be the truth must be above all. 
So listen. The world does not know who Jesus is. The world does not know what love is. And yet, that's the very thing they profess to know above all things. Don't fall into their traps. Don't believe their lies. Don't shrink back out of fear. Don't let them intimidate you. Fear God. Arm yourselves with his word. Listen to his truth. Listen to what scripture says. Believe it. Trust it. And stand up for it. Take courage. If you do these things, your reward will be great. I promise you. If you desire to be godly, take up your cross and follow him. There will be persecution, but think how much greater the reward will be. Let's do this work together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth that is contained in it. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us for fearing men, for fearing things that should not be feared, and for not fearing you. Father, I pray that you would give us courage as we live in this world that hates you and that does not know what love is. May we not shrink back fearfully from these wicked men, but may we speak truth fearlessly, constantly, so that you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.